But we are uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. We have been, uh, usually we're in the Gospel of John throughout the normal weeks of the month, but on the first week of the month, we go into the book of Ecclesiastes for a, a, what, Lord willing, a, a shorter meditation on uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. And today, uh, we're in a, another fantastic passage, another blessing from the Lord. So could I please ask you to stand, if you would, for one more time, out of respect for the reading of God's Word. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let's all intently listen together to the perfect and inerrant Word of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God, and draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let, your mouth lead, let, let, your, let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we are people that are prone to incessant chatter and foolish dreams and a lot of talk and foolish ideas, Lord. And so we pray that you would help us to listen, to sit quietly and listen to your voice, Lord. Help us hear, O Lord, and help us to do what we hear for the glory of your name. Amen. Please be seated. We, are, we turned a hard corner as soon as we hit chapter 5. Last month in chapter 4, we went through the entire chapter and God was not mentioned one single time in the entire chapter, which let us know that that was deep underground, deep under the sun, deep problems and deep suffering in the world. And today when we get to chapter 5, in the first seven verses, we get God mentioned seven times. It's the highest concentration of mentioning God in all the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, the rabbis used to say, or they would have a saying, uh, they would say, um, do not forget before whom you stand. In other words, being in the presence of God or the things of God is becoming, being Christians and being constantly in the presence of God and the things of God, it's very possible for us to become so familiar with God that we lose sight of the holiness of God and that we lose sight of the majesty of God and we lose that sense of reverence and awe that's also a part of New Covenant worship. You know, I was focusing on, uh, I was reading I, the Lord's Prayer, the prayer we just, we've just read. The first line, I was thinking about it this week, it says, Our Father who art in heaven... It has two ideas contained in those very first two sentences. In the New Testament, as a, uh, God has brought us close. He has brought us into intimate communion with himself so that we call him Father. But at the same time, God still resides in the heavenlies. 
there is still an awesome difference between who God is and who we are. And so Christian worship is a balancing of those things, knowing the familiarity of God and coming into his presence with joy and with song, and at the same time, not forgetting before whom we stand so that we are also offering him the proper reverence and the proper awe. Um, And so, you know, this passage talks about guarding your steps when you come into the house of the Lord and careful to not offer the sacrifice of fools. And so most commentaries, they jump all over the church growth movement, if you know what that is. Over the last 40 years, there's been a restructuring of Christian worship that's really focused more on people seeking God than it is on God's people worshiping him together. And so, and it's not for unjust cause that they jump on that, but let's try to keep in our minds here as we go through this that um, let's try to be careful to see what this says about us rather than just thinking about what it might say about somebody else, all right? And so this passage talks about what worship should look like in the church, what worship should look like out of the church as we leave here, the fruit of that worship, what we should be careful about when we come here, and what we should be careful to do when we leave here at the end of the service to go out and be lights in the world. And so here's the big idea of this passage, the thesis statement, the one main thing that the preacher wants us to know, and that is this, that the sacrifice of fools is self-worship, but the worship of the saints is thanksgiving for the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of fools is self-worship, but the worship of the saints is thanksgiving for the sacrifice of Christ. Let's take that one little piece at a time. The sacrifice of fools is self-worship. Look at verse 5, 1, let's go through 3. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, let your heart not be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. The contrast, notice the contrast they're giving here. The difference is between, uh, it's warning us to guard our steps or to be careful to listen rather than to speak and to dream or to have much words or imagination. Speaking means talking, having things be about what we are, or, or, or having things be about what we want them to be about. And dreams is like our subjective imaginations, dreaming and making up our own ideas about what we should have, what worship should be all about. What we want to say and what we want to do versus what God wants. And so the real, the, the, the thrust of this first half of this chapter is that when, or this, this passage is that when we worship, when our worship starts to become more about what we want to say and what we want to do than it is about what God has said and what God wants us to do. Or when our worship starts to become more about us than it is about God, we really stop worshiping God and really just begin a very ritualistic way of a ceremonial high art way of worshiping ourselves. And so when he's talking about the sacrifice of fools, he's talking about just that. You know, when I, when I came to New Life Church, um, 
I, I didn't know any hymns at all, and I had to learn all these hymns because I was helping to plan the liturgy. And I used to joke with my wife, Nisa, whenever a worship song was played, I would say, is that Chris Tomlin? Because I didn't know any songs other than Chris Tomlin. So I had to learn these hymns. So I would go to YouTube and listen to the hymns, and one of the great, one of the, I found these fantastic videos of the royal wedding of Prince William and, and, and Kate Middleton. Have you seen those? Go check those out. They, it's the royal wedding it's a worship service. Uh, it, is, it is astonishingly beautiful beyond measure. There are, they're singing the old hymns of the faith. Uh, there's, it's pageantry. Uh, it's, high, it's the highest art that you could imagine. And yet, as the camera like, starts to scan through the crowd, you can see people are holding the hymnals. And when they come across old, you know, when they come across Orthodox Christianity in the hymnals, you can almost see them wince in their faces. You know, they can't believe they're singing this. Now, I know it's a mixed crowd. There's got to be, I know there's, there are believers in there that were singing those at the top of their lungs. But we also know, and I also know, that was a recent event, and that in the Church of England at that level, and many of those people there, they were going through those motions and they were creating that beautiful high art and entertainment, but in their hearts, they didn't believe a word of it. And you can see it. You can see it on their faces as they go through these songs. And so the scary thing, the really scary thing that this presents to us, the idea is that it's very possible for people to think that they are offering worship to God, that they... They can think, we can think that we are doing certain things that are offering worship to God when in fact they're not. They're not worshiping God to all. In fact, God says that they are doing evil. So what does that look like? You know, in the Old Testament there was, you know, we could look at the book of Malachi and the fact that people were bringing blemished lambs, things that didn't cost them anything, stuff they were going to throw away, their worst offerings to God. Um, People were then living lives totally contrary to what the Bible talked about and coming to worship and offering their worship and vows and like a magic trick that was going to cleanse their sins by just doing the act. Um, and those things are, are that, those ideas and those temptations have been rife throughout the history of the church. Let me give you three, three ways that we make worship all about us. And let me give you another disclaimer before I do that. Um, each of these ways is probably an easy target for us to think, oh yeah, those guys. Those guys do that. That church does that. Um, but I've, uh, <coughs> I've, watched other, I've watched a particular church where their pastor, all he pretty much did was preach about how their theology was best and how everybody else's was messed up. And the church became a hotbed of, of, of self-righteousness and arrogance and awful spiritual health. And so let's, when we look at these things, even if something comes to mind about them, and one of these is probably going to be more us than anybody else, let's not try to think about what this might mean for other people, but let's think about what this means for us. And the first one is going through the motions, or what we might call traditionalism. Right? I heard this great quote. There's a difference between tradition and traditionalism. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. In other words, it's what the saints throughout the ages have come up with 
to, 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 as legitimate worship, as beautiful worship to God that they have handed down to us. And a lot of our liturgy is part of that. It's part, we benefited from the centuries that have gone before us. And so the, the saying is, traditional, tradition is the living faith of the dead, but traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. In other words, when we come in and we just run through the motions or we do things or not, our heart's not in it, and that could be anywhere, right? Whether your liturgy is call to worship, song of adoration, reading of the law, confession of sin, gospel, declaration of forgiveness, or whether your liturgy is welcome, four praise songs, announcements, sermon, it doesn't matter what your formula is, going in and going through the motions is a temptation that we can have to have that worship not really be about God or have it not be in our hearts. And saying that, though, I get it. I get it. Nisa had found this post a while ago where she said, whoever wrote the song, Easy Like Sunday Morning, never got kids ready for church. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, I know we're blazing in here and there's a million things that might have gone wrong today or whatever, and you get here and we're distracted in a thousand different ways and we sit down in the call and we're worshiping and we're, you know, you're thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow morning. I get it. We're all super busy like that. Our culture makes us that way. So, but listen to this. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. I, when I first saw this, I sat back and was like, wow, that's amazing. Here it is. It's in the, it's in the section about worship. It talks about one of the elements of worship is sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word. Did you hear that? The second part? First part is my responsibility to preach sound theology, but the second part of that is the congregation's responsibility. Part of an act of worship, we're supposed to be focused on, on the liturgy, focused on the word. And I, look, look, Lord knows, and I know that I make that hard for you sometimes, okay? And, and you know what? Lord knows, as I was like, trying to get my sermon finished today at four o'clock, <laughs> this was going through my mind that I was going about to preach this about distraction, about not, you know, everything going on on Sunday. But what it's calling us to do, what that thing in the confession is calling us to do, and that's from biblical principles, is that we, we have an obligation out of gratitude to God to do what we need to do in order to be focused when we get here. And what that means is could mean different from, for everybody. It means putting some margins in your life. It means cutting things down, making time for things on Sunday. It means keeping the Sabbath. It means enjoying God all day on Sunday, and focusing on God and the worship of God and his blessings, family and fellowship and amazing feasts and new members and all the blessings that he gives us. And uh, you know, maybe it means this. There's a, a, R. Kent Hughes from College Church talks about they have part of their liturgies of 10 minutes before everything starts where they just have silence and they call it centering down. Where everybody just comes, you just make it in your schedule. You add a little bumper of time so you come a little early and you sit down in the pew and you just focus on God and get your, clear your mind of all the things and get ready to come into the presence of God, which is what's happening here 
right now. Second thing um, is, second way we can make worship all about us, really, is, is, is to treat worship as if it was entertainment. You know, and this is the one that everybody jumps on. And what does that mean? I mean, not, some people take this principle and then they use it as an excuse for um, boring worship or unprepared worship. Or they use it as an excuse to cling to uh, worship styles from the 17th century. Or they use it for all kinds of reasons to excuse the fact that liturgy isn't done with excellence and done well. So that's not what it's talking about. What it is talking about is if we start, if our liturgy, if our, if our worship of God starts to morph away from being the saints offering their praises to God and receiving his graces to things that entertain or entice unbelievers. That's a significant shift, isn't it? That's, that's what we mean when we say worship is entertainment. But it's not just those churches, right? It can be us, too. Do we come here wanting to be entertained? I mean, some, you know, worship, worship is beautiful. But worship also contains moments of silence. Worship contains moments of reflection. Worship is not all about uh, enticing the senses to emotional appeal, although there's a lot of that in it. Jonathan Edwards, one of his first admonitions for preachers was to preach to stir up the holy affections, and we should do that. We need to do that. And we are, we are committed to doing that here at ResPres. But the thing is that rather than, here's the thing, here's the bottom line. Worship shouldn't be entertaining. It should be way more than entertaining. Worship should be enthralling. I mean, we're not just being entertained. It's just not sensual titillation happening. We are in the presence of God. He has come to meet us by speaking to us through his word to strengthen us in grace, to reaffirm his blessing on us. That is way more than entertainment. I read this commentator. He said, he said it's awe of God that makes worship awesome. <laughs> and I was like, hey, touchdown. Exactly. It's the reverence and awe of God that makes, uh, that makes worship awesome, that makes worship enthralling. And so it's something even more than entertainment. Third thing, really quickly, I'm just going to call this worship snobbery. And this is probably where we're more at fault than anybody else. It's the idea of thinking that our theology has led us to a place of understanding Christ-centered worship that's better than other people's and then we start looking down at them. Our worship is better than your worship. Or uh, we get to the point where we start fighting people on, you know, minor points. 
the Bible says that we know, we can, we can interpret the Bible based on directly what it says or good and necessary consequence. And sometimes we take that to be good and necessary consequence of good and necessary consequence of good and necessary consequence. And we get out to the fourth or fifth level of point and then want to fight people over that. Brothers. So I just wanted to throw that out. Chill out on that. Some people might not do worship the way we do. We may believe, and I believe we do, have a worship that is more focused on biblical principles and more centered on Christ and the gospel. But the reason we do that isn't so that we can make ourselves superior. The reason we do that is so that we can bless other people with it. And in great patience and in gentleness and in kindness and in friendship, bring them in to experience it and and benefit from it. And so here, let me wrap all that up. The, the purpose of worship is not to have it be about what we want to say and what we want to do and the things that seem right to our minds. The purpose of worship is to stop and listen and let the voice of God reign or be over our voices. To stop and let the voice of God speak to us over our voices. And isn't that a beautiful thing? Think about the voice that goes on in your head. Just vacillating between visions of grandeur and awful hate speech towards yourself. God comes in and speaks truth about you. Yes, we are suffering from sin. We are far worse than we could possibly imagine, but at the same time, we are more loved and more cherished than we could ever, ever dare to hope through the gospel of Christ. And possibly the most important word in this first verse is at the very beginning, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. It doesn't say guard your steps if you go to the house of God, which speaks about a routine. Or it speaks about a practice. It speaks about the long-term discipline of going to the house of God so that over time, It shapes us. God's voice, when we allow God's voice to reign over ours, over time it begins to shape us into something else. And so you have to ask yourself, what what is my routine? What am I focused on? What am I abiding in? As we talked about in John the other day, that is what's shaping you. But if we stop and we, we make it a practice, a routine, to allow the voice of God to shape us through worship over the long term, it becomes something beautiful. Do you, know, do you know people that have been faithful in just attending church week after week after week? They make the Sunday the center of their week. They make worship the center of their lives and they possess this calm internal beauty that's very beautiful and desirable. That's the product of a long time of sitting in worship and developing that routine when we go to the house of God. So, sacrifice of fools is self-worship. But, point two, the worship of the saints is thanksgiving. Let's read four and five. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Now, you might ask yourself, how in the world is he, getting, is he pulling thanksgiving out of that verse? Well, let me read 
two other verses that I think are related to that from the New Testament. The first is Hebrews 12, 28, which we read in the call. You guys actually read it back as the, as the, as the response. And the call was, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus... Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. I think that's an allusion back to Hebrews chapter 5. He's talking about the fear of God, which this talks about. He's talking about reverence and awe. Uh, He's talking about what is acceptable worship versus not. What he says is that, therefore, this this is the what of worship. The what of the worship of the saints is that we be grateful, thus or, and in this way, Offering to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And the second verse that goes with it is Romans chapter 12, which says this. And this is the how verse. What is worship is great, is gratitude or thanksgiving. And the how we go about doing that is this, Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, it's saying that sacrifice or denying our selfish desires in the, or what we think is right in favor of what God thinks is right, of what God's infinite wisdom has told us in his word, that is the worship of thanksgiving and sacrifice that the saints offer and the New Testaments and vows help us to do that. There was a, Rachel was telling me the story a while ago, Rachel Johnson, about her dad, Glenn Phelps, when she was newly married to Jim, he would say something to the effect of, of vows are what keep marriages together. In other words, he was saying, what he was trying to express to her was that um, sometimes a vow is the only thing that stands between you and yourself when you want to run. Sometimes it's the vow that you've made, the vow that you've made to God that keeps you in a situation long-term and keeps you from selling yourself out. In other words, sometimes a vow is the only thing that protects you from yourself when you want to run away from God-ordained circumstances and sell yourself out for the short term. Because that's what happens. I mean, why would we take vows? We take vows... um, we take vows in those areas of life where it's a, we're especially tempted or things that are very challenging for us to do or to stick with. And that vow, you know, a definition, here's a working definition of a vow. Working definition of a vow is a solemn promise according to God's will with God as your accountability partner. It means you're calling God to hold you accountable to what you're saying. Um... And that's great, but it can also be scary. Listen to Ecclesiastes 5, 6. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? That's a scary verse, isn't it? Does that mean that if we don't keep our vows, that God is going to then destroy us or destroy the work of our hands? Maybe, in a, in a redemptive way. You know, I was talking to uh, Dr. Telfer the other day about how beautiful it is in the Presbyterian church that, 
the, the pathway for office, the pathway to become a pastor is tiny, but the pathway to become a member is huge. All we ask for membership is that you display a, a, a credible profession of faith. But to become a pastor, to become an officer, you have to take very strict vows. And I, I mean, have we not seen pastors that have violated those vows and have been taken out? I mean, look at Ananias and Sapphira in the beginning of Acts chapter 2. That was a vow they made. They lied to God. I mean, that was a very, I think, probably a special time in church history. But maybe God will discipline us if we don't keep vows that we should be keeping. But I think an even bigger part of this, an even bigger part of this idea is that some promises are so important that God asks us to put vows on them because to break those promises would necessarily bring sadness and destruction in our lives and the lives of people around us. Right? In this case, we have a case of somebody who pledged money to support the temple, and then he changed his mind. So while he was worshipful, he understood that he could afford to give so much, and then he left, you know, watched some TV, said, hey man, I need that truck, changed his mind about what he wanted to use that money for, and then the messenger, not an angel, but just a regular guy came from the temple and saying, hey, can we have your pledge? And he goes, oh man, it was a mistake. And so the vow... The vow there is meant to protect him from worshiping money over God in the time that he was tempted. And that same principle is true with the, with the really serious vows that we make. We make wedding vows, right? We make wedding vows. And at some point, trust me in this, you newlyweds, at some point, everybody wants to quit the marriage. That's why the advice that Rachel's dad gave her was so wise and beautiful. At some point, everybody wants to quit that marriage. Everybody wants to focus on what he did to me or what she did to me and, and bail out. But it's the vow. It's the vow. You've asked God to keep you as an, accountabil- as an accountability partner, keep you in that vow that allows you to stay in it. You're no longer doing it because of what the other person deserves, but you're doing it out of an act of love and devotion to Christ And then over time, those things work out and God uses those circumstances to sanctify you and to beautify his afflicted ones. If you didn't have the value, just bail out and you would never have the beauty or the blessing of that in your life. Same thing with membership vows. Jake and Ariana just took membership vows here tonight. Very unpopular idea, right? Nobody wants commitment but let's say you join a small church and part of joining a small church means that people are going to find out about your dirt. Amen? (laughs) Find out about my dirt. We're going to find out about all our sin. Now, without the vow, you're in a situation, comes out you're kind of a bully or it comes out that uh, you you, you seek praise or it kind of comes out that you blah, 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 you fill in the blank. Everybody knows it. Without the vow, you can just hop, skip, and jump over to another church where they don't know you and just go in, see the movie, walk out, and leave. But in a small church, we take vows so that you can sit in it. So you can say, okay, this is things that I struggle with. And then we all together, we make a covenant with each other. We all realize we're in the same boat. Everybody's got dirt. And we trust and promise that we're going to work it out together. And nobody 
Every, nobody points fingers. Nobody's better than anybody else. We all say, man, I got some dirt. You got some dirt too. But God has put us in this relationship. I've made this vow to stay. And we're going to work it out together by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you, God uses that to beautify his afflicted ones. It's a beautiful thing. You know, the problem, the reason that we duck out of vows is because we want to self-arrange our lives based on the right now. Because these things are hard, right? In order to do these things, it means two things. You're going to have to deal with other people's sin and, and be gracious to that and long-suffering with that. But the other thing, and maybe even the harder thing, is you're going to have to come face-to-face with your own sin and admit that that's really you. And that's a hard thing to do. Man, that's a hard thing. Hard, hard, hard thing to do. But on the other side of it is blessing. And so we duck out of our commitments. We duck out of our vows or try to because we want to short-circuit that process. We want to sell ourselves out in favor of just getting out of the situation and we think that they will be then okay. But the truth is that whatever that sin was, you're going to take with you and you will deal with it at some point in the future. But if we stay together and we deal with it, it gets dealt with now. And God blesses it. And, and listen, God is the only one who has the wisdom and the knowledge to arrange your life according to your goodness. Do you really want your own will? Do you really want to do your own will or do you want God and his infinite wisdom and goodness to work his will out in you? Rhetorical question. So then the question is, how do we do this? How is it possible for us to sit in this uncomfortable pain? How is it possible for us to sit in, in long-suffering with other sin? How is it possible for us to see our own sin and stay and deal with it, work through it? How do we do those things that are so hard? And the answer is point three. Although the sacrifice of fools is self-worship, but the worship of the saints is thanksgiving for the sacrifice of Christ. Let me share with you the hardest vow anybody ever had to make. In the Abrahamic covenant, God came to Abraham and he said that he would bless him in all these ways, including that through his seed, which was Christ, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And Abraham, in chapter 15 of Genesis, comes to God. He's now 99 years old. His wife has always been barren. She's now way beyond the years of childbirth. And he says, Lord, how can this possibly be that you are going to bless me with a child through whom the Savior of the world is going to be born? And God says to him, Abraham, I want you to look up at the sky and look at the stars. And Abraham looks at the stars and he says, as many stars are in the heaven as as many as your offspring will be. That's how many people your offspring will bless and bring into salvation. And Abraham says, how can this be? And so he says, bring me some animals, which is in the Old Testament covenant rituals. They would bring animals and cut them in half, and they would lay them out, one on side of the other, And then people would walk through these separated carcasses and make a vow saying, if I do not keep my promise, let what happened to these animals happen to me. That was a covenant ceremony in the Old Testament. 
And so Abraham is put into a deep sleep after he's cut these animals in half so that there's no confusion about who's making the promise here. And then Genesis says this, And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Notice the column of smoke and the column of fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, and on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. You know what he was doing there? In that moment, God was making the promise to Abraham and to then all of his descendants, which includes us, that he would take upon himself the covenant curses that Abraham deserved and that we all deserve so that he could give Abraham the promise, so that he could give us the promise. Where was Abraham? Sleeping. What was his part of the covenant making here? Sleeping. Because this covenant is purely a covenant of promise. There was nothing on our end that we do for it. The Abrahamic covenant, which was the forerunner of the covenant of grace, the, the new covenant in Jesus' blood, is a covenant of promise. And on that day, in that moment, Christian, God made an unbreakable vow to you that he would go through whatever was necessary to bring the blessing of salvation to you, and he did. He went through it on the cross. He suffered the curses that we deserve so that he could give us the blessing of eternal life. And it didn't stop there. Jesus then ascended into heaven, and in his intercession, in his ministry of intercession, he intercedes for us constantly so that even now, when we fail in keeping our vows... Jesus doesn't fail us. He is keeping his vow to us. He's keeping us safe. He's keeping us secure because of what he's accomplished for us. And so now does that drive us to say, ah, then I don't have to keep any of my vows. Let's just party. No, it shouldn't do that, right? It should produce devotion in us. It should produce a drive to... to, to love God and to love each other even more, to, to regroup. And even where we failed in keeping our vows, even where we failed each other, even where we made worship all about ourselves, to just regroup and move forward in gratitude and in worship and in obedience for what Christ has done for us. It was the hardest vow that anyone ever made, and he kept it. So we can know that when we have these vows that we've made or these things that God has asked us to do and we say it's too hard, I can't do it, I won't do it, rather than looking at your flesh, we can look at Jesus and say, Jesus kept the hardest vow anybody ever made and it has bought me a place in the new world and that gives me the ability then to breathe out, to keep my vow, to struggle forward in victory 
as we seek to worship Christ for what he's done for us. Amen? Amen. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we are too often consumed by a fear of losing our foolish dreams more than of losing our fear of you, losing our reverence and awe for you, of not following through. Lord, we are... a, a Lord, we confess that we don't keep our promises. And Lord, it breaks our hearts, Lord. But we know that your word tells us you've given us your spirit and that by your work on the cross and your intercession for us, you're keeping us safe. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that and to focus on that whenever we're called to keep a vow, whenever we're called to keep a promise, or to extend grace and forgiveness beyond what we think is our potential or capacity. I pray that we would look at that and know that your spirit is available to us unmeasured. And we pray, Lord, that we would be a blessing to each other as we seek to glorify your name. Lord, we love you and praise you. As we come to the table, we pray that you would impress these things on our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.